Jeez Marie August Foltis Jock. Mary Kennedy here, and you're very welcome to my first series of Senior Times podcasts. Now, it's often been said that we are a nation of storytellers. I believe that to be true, and I am hugely impressed by the number and the quality of women writers in this country. On this podcast, my guest is Christine Dwyer Hickey. Christine, you're very welcome. Thank you. And I'm going to start by talking about uh, not your first book. This is actually your fourth book. But uh, it's very important because it was honoured by Dublin City Council this year. It's Tatty and it was uh, the book that was chosen for One City, One Book. And I think the best way to start would be to ask you if you wouldn't mind to read a piece from it. So, when you go out with the men, you go to the pub. You get hooshed up on the bar stool. You get to do things you're not supposed to tell mam about. Sometimes you get a little pint of stout. A pint for me, Dad says, and a little pint for my pal here. It tastes like black buttermilk, sour and thick. It stings the tubes in the inside of your ears on the way down. But you drink it all up and go, ah, the way Dad does, and wipe your mouth on the back of your hand. You know, um, what I found reading Tatty was the, the sweetness of that little girl. She really is a sweet child. And the, the the difficulties that she has to encounter, you know, you have a way of getting inside her head and her heart that makes the reader um, have huge love for her. How did you devise that, if you like, that vehicle of talking in the first person and doing it from a child's point of view? Well, to be honest, Mary, it's Tatty is highly autobiographical. Although when it came out in 2004, I would have been shot rather than admit that. <laughs> At the time, I was sort of saying, no, no, it's just, it's just a, a fictional work with some autobiographical elements in it. But really, it's my own story. And it's um, Tatty is me. It was even my nickname when I was a child. My father's nickname for me was Tatty. And uh, so once I decided to go that route to tell the story through a child's point of view, um, I had to just dig deep inside myself, go back in my memory and go back into my mind and just let the story come out the way it wanted to come out. So I visualised a lot of the, 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 the geographical things like, you know, the races and going to the races and all that. And God knows I've been to enough race courses in my time. And that little thing even from the pub is exactly what I did when I used to go to the pub with my father. I spent a lot of time with him in the formative years. So yeah, it's, so, so, that, so that made it a little bit easier because on the one hand, because it was my story, but because it was my story, it was quite difficult to tell too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it's funny because um, when when we're looking at Tatty, she is very sweet and it is your story. And I didn't realise when I was reading it mm. that it was autobiographical. But uh, it's it's quite harrowing as well, the story. When you think of this little one that you've yeah. just read the excerpt from, sitting in a pub when she should have been out playing, really. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. it's not a world that she should have been in at all, no. that you should have been in at all. It, it seemed quite, it seemed more normal in one ways than, and in the 60s and the 70s, you'd see children in pubs. Um, and I think in that case, it's only now when you look back that you think, oh, that was a terrible thing for a child. Like when I think of it, you know, being sent to the bookies across the big road and being sent in, but the men sending her wasn't just the father sending her. It was the other man sending her with the, with the, the list when she was five or six to go to the bookies. And it just seemed to be a different Dublin then on, on the one hand. And on the other hand, nobody ever said that child is too young to be in the pub. 
It was it all happened during the day, and funnily enough, I don't feel particularly particularly neglected because of the childhood experience in the pub. Because quite a lot of the time, I had great fun, and I saw a lot of people, and I met a lot of people, and you know, I had a lot of adventures with my father. It was for me the drinking environment became problematic later. Yeah, because yeah. the the theme is as you say, the breakdown of a marriage, but it's the breakdown of a marriage because of alcoholism Mainly and gambling. Because, yeah. And that was your story as well. And that's well. my story as well, yeah. And the pressures that the, the particular couple go into. Um, yeah, so, yeah, it, it became worrying and, and something I, that I get upset about when I think about it later on in, in my childhood, but not those little trips to the pub. Mm-hmm. Um, Some of the, the scenes are actually quite touching because uh, the dad mm. is absolutely mad about Tatty. Were you your dad's pet as well? I was the pet, yeah, I was <laughs> the pet. I was the only girl and uh, he was a bit put out when I was born that I wasn't a boy. It's my father... Um, was the last in his family to get married and he sort of avoided, I think, even though he was engaged, I think, a couple of times, but he actually avoided the, the, the taking the final step to marriage. And um, then when when my mother was expecting me, he was just sure it was going to be a boy and wanted to have it to be a boy. But when, So when I was born, he wasn't a bit impressed with me at all. But then I became very quickly his pet. And uh, my mother used to tell the story that when they were newlyweds, he used to come in, when he'd come in from work, he'd walk across the room and he'd pick her up and, you know, in his arms when he came home. Because they had this very romantic kind of um, marriage, particularly in the early days. And then as soon as I was born, he'd walk past her and he'd pick me up. So <laughs> there was always going to be problems, I'm afraid. So anyway... Um, the, but we were very close, yeah, we were very close. Yeah, it's a it's a, a really moving family yeah. story. And for you to have it chosen, it's a Dublin story. Mm, yeah, for it to be Dublin. chosen for One City, One Book, that must have made you very proud. It, it did, but it was sort of a mixed blessing because on the one hand, I was thinking, oh, that's wonderful. And then I thought, oh God, now I'm going to have to talk about all this stuff again. It's going to bring it up. But a few things happened between the time I was told that it had been chosen as the, and when they say the UNESCO One City, One Book, you see, it sounds like a really huge, honour and by the time it came out uh, uh, not just COVID but other things that happened too but a lot of events were planned and um, the uh, my mother died in the meantime uh, in last November and I also came across they invited me to become to, to, to come on as a guest to an organisation called Silent Voices who are an organisation that help adult children of alcoholics and both things made me change my mind and think, well, I want to talk, I'm going to talk about what it's like to be a, a child of an alcoholic. So, yeah, I was very proud, but a bit nervous too about having to talk about things. And you know. well, Tell us a little bit about your family, because you, yeah. you grew up in Dublin. Yeah. And um, it, it sounds, uh, if I'm going by the, yeah. the, the story in Tatty, it was quite a, an affluent upbringing that you had, was it? Well, it was... We, were, we, we, were brought, we were brought up, there was never a shortage of money in the house, um, I have to say. Uh, my father was a gambler and gamblers always have, you know, a lot of money, a lot of cash. And so it would go up and down, but we were never stuck for money. And there was a lot of extravagance in the house as well. There was no, it's a very common thing with gamblers, there's no budgeting and there's very little organisation and there's very little being told, you can't have this or, you know, it was either there or it wasn't there. And um, so we lived in a kind of an ordinary uh, housing estate, which would have been at, the, at the, the, the last housing estate just before Temple Oak stood. 
uh, which my father was very proud of because it was a stud farm at racehorses. Oh, and he liked the racing. Oh yeah. And we could go walk around the corner and see a horse called Pampelina that used to be there that was a very famous horse. And uh, right up beside you, the, 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 you see the horse. So, um, but it was very ordinary and they were very very respectable and, you know, all the daddies washed the car on this day and they, and they, they, they mowed the lawn on that day. All the daddies except my daddy. <laughs> <laughs> so he went to work really early. He used to leave at six o'clock in the morning to go to work. Mm-hmm. and But he'd be gone all day and uh, he just was a diff- much different to the other daddies and you notice that, you know. Well, the the, the daddy in mm. Tatty um, is kind of, okay, he's an alcoholic and he's mm. a gambler, but he's also almost sometimes feels guilty for the way he is and tries to make up to the children. He does try to make up. I think he kind of indulged the children, which my father did too. And I think at that stage in Tatty, we can see the alcoholism um, developing. Now I could see it in hindsight. But at the time, he didn't seem to, because he could, those days, if you could hold your drink, you didn't have a problem. You see, it was the people who couldn't hold a drink were regarded as alcoholics. And I think he was, now we know he would be a functioning alcoholic probably but his drinking just increased and got more erratic as time way past the end of tatty you know as time mm-hmm, went on mm-hmm. and as the when the marriage broke up and things like that it he it became much heavier but yeah i think one thing i could say about my father is that um he made a lot of mistakes and he certainly wouldn't be the conventional father type you know mm-hmm. and probably not a great example but he had a huge capacity for love and i think that's that. That is something that stayed with me um, all all my life. So it's kind of easier to forgive something like that. As an adult, then, mm. when you became older and I suppose more understanding mm. of what had happened, how did you react to your parents and the the kind of the upbringing that you'd had? Were you angry? Were you no? I just kind of always. I think. I don't think anger would be the thing. Like, when my parents separated, my mother left the house, so my father was the carer. But in other words, you can say I was, you know, because he, well, he did his best, I suppose, but he was kind of a very unusual type of carer. And we, there were things sometimes, there are little small things that hit me sometimes that I find, not bitterness, I wouldn't think it's bitterness, but things that I find are hard to forgive. And one of them actually has nothing to do with my parents. It's the attitude to other people of other people, other parents to us. Like we were stigmatized. We were sort Mm -hmm. of like, keep their kids away. There was a sense that family's wild. There's no mother there. There's there's something that's going to taint us. So, you know, there was a a, a sense that some parents didn't approve of us as as children or Mm -hmm. as teenagers. Mm -hmm. They didn't approve of us. And so that hurts still sometimes when I think of it. You know, if I see another child being judged for something, I get really upset about it. Yeah. You know, I'm you, the first to stick my nose in or to, you know, to, I, I don't like it when I see that and because it's so hurtful. You that's know, the way so, you've reacted to it. That's the, the way I've reacted the to it. Yeah. yeah. And I think mm. because of that, when you talk about Tashi going to a secondary school yeah. and the way you describe it, I immediately said, oh, that's Mount Sackville. It yeah, has to be. except it was a junior school. I went to junior school when I was 10 mm-hmm. in Mount Sackville and my whole life changed. My whole life changed. In what way? Out. Well, you know, people are always crying. You, you go back to school and everybody was floods of tears and I'd be the only one grinning delighted with myself. <laughs> to but leave the chaos. All, yeah, I mean, I went there twice. The second time as a teenager, it was more difficult because I didn't like me leaving my pals at home, you know. But when I went there when I was 10 years of age, I just thought it was the most wonderful place. First of all, I'd come from a big national school where there was about 40 girls in the class and I was very low down the end of the class, usually second last, I'd say. And... When I went there, 
Nobody knew anything about my background. Nobody cared about my background. We weren't allowed, it was one of the rules that you weren't allowed to ask anybody what their, because it was always a daddy, what their daddy worked at. You weren't allowed, there's no snobbery allowed, anything like that. So I went into this place with all these different girls from all over the world. And in those days, all you ever saw in Dublin were white pasty faces, Irish faces. And we go in and I see Indian girls, girls from Africa, girls from South America, everywhere, all over the world. And in fact, there was even more exotic than that. There was in the in fifth class, there were boys. And one of them had a ring as big as this and wax that he used to put a wax stamp on his, uh, on his letters <laughs> home. So it was wow. all very exotic. And we did things like art every day and drama every day. And it, I just went from being the bottom of the class to up to the top of the class mm. in no time at all. Really? And I loved it. I loved that we all had our own cubicle. My cubicle was the same as everybody else's. Nothing was broken or smashed. There was nothing, you know, we were organised because at home it was all chaotic. Yeah, you know? it was chaotic. Yeah. yeah. You also speak um, very endearingly of the, the nuns. Oh yeah, I loved the nuns in Mount Sackville, I have to say. Well, that's pretty unusual for somebody of no, our to, generation. It is, yeah. Now, I went to, to another speak. school in first and second year and I hated those nuns. I probably won't even mention them. And, you know, a friend of mine who was there said, you could sue those nuns, you know, for the way they treated you. But they didn't, it wasn't physical abuse or anything like that, but it was, it was just a horrible school. But when I was in Mount Sackville, it was all very, they were just unusual women and they were also very good role models because they all drove cars they were all educated they were all had lived all over the world and they had a great sense of humour like myself and another pal who was probably the only other real dub in the in the in the school we would get up and we would entertain the nuns do, taking off the women in, 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 in Moore Street the cheeky Charlies and the language out of us in some of the th- cases that we didn't even know what we were saying it was only afterwards we thought about it and the tears would roll down the nuns faces listening to us they thought it was brilliant mm, yeah yeah. It's funny, therefore, uh, they must have been very, I suppose, sad for you, as they seem to have been for Tatty when yeah. uh, she was taken out of Mount because she had to go home and look yeah. after because both parents were alcoholics at this yeah. stage and yeah. she had to mind the rest of the children. Yeah. That happened but, to you. Well, it didn't happen to me in that exact way, actually, with that one. What happened when I did it at that story in that particular way was I was coming near to a very painful time in the story of Tatty and I just ran out of courage so I just kind of stunted it at that time. Like for example, I gave Tatty a sister she didn't have, Jeannie, because it was too much for one child to bear so I had to split it. Mm-hmm. And in the beginning I was going to make Jeannie, at one stage I was going to make her an imaginary friend that uh, she bounced ideas off but then I thought, no, i leave it as it is. So I just, it was the time, the first time when my mother went in to have treatment and I just kind of said, uh, heading towards that particular time when I knew, when I came home from um, the first two years in Tatty and I knew my parents' marriage was over and I knew I just didn't want to go there mm-hmm. and I just wanted it to be over. So I just kind of, you know, very quickly did that. Mm-hmm. Fair yeah. play to you, Christine, because, um, you know, it's it was a, a tough life for Tatty. It was obviously a very difficult um, yeah. upbringing for you as well. Does the book kind of um, give you... I don't know what they call closure now or was it cathartic to write? No, I, I thought sometimes what I did was it helped other people more than me, strangers, because a lot of people wrote to me and said, you've no idea how much this book has helped me because I thought there was something wrong with me because I felt resentment towards my parents or because this happened and that happened because it's a very, very like, there's an awful lot of people in, in the same predicament. I know. And what happens is the older, when you're a child, you accept anything. Mm. You accept anything. And the, the within the alcoholic home, it's not just, it's a bit like the COVID there is a, a, an infection rate 
like one person has it and the whole family have it. Mm -hmm. Even the baby has it. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody yeah. has it. So you just kind of, you and the role playing, everybody takes on a role. Sometimes those roles get mixed up. And one of the roles I think I took on was kind of scapegoat. So you feel it's your fault. It's your, you're responsible for it. So everything that happens to you, you deserve on some level. Mm -hmm. And that mm -hmm. comes into your, that comes into your child, your, grows into your adulthood and you have to, that's when you have to deal with it, I think. Mm -hmm. When you have children of your own and you think, hold on now, how are we going to do this as a parent on the other side? You know? Yeah. yeah. And um, it's a very complex thing. It's something that doesn't leave us, but it did help a lot of people. With me, sometimes I wonder would I have been left better off leaving <laughs> screwed under the floorboards. But oh, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, don't, know. Yeah. I don't know really. Well, it's good that it has yeah. helped other people as well. Yeah. It has, it has helped other people. Mm. And I think I, it probably has helped me in one way. What happened was after my father died, he died in 1995. And I found it very difficult to come to terms with his death. And um, I eventually went for counselling, for grief, grieving, grieving counselling. And the, the woman said to me, the counsellor said to me, why don't you... Um, go home and start writing your story, but write it from a child's point of view. And then you can see that children are not responsible for their parents' mm. mistakes. So that's kind of how it came around. Oh, that's very, very yeah. interesting. Really. Yeah. Your free travel card can be used on all Expressway coach services. Despite restrictions, we're staying on the road. Whether you need to attend a medical appointment or for any other essential journey, Remember to travel with Expressway. Expressway. Keeping Ireland connected. Here's your chance to win a new Doro 7030 feature phone with access to WhatsApp and Facebook. Designed specifically for seniors and available to buy in Vodafone stores or online. Doro are market leaders in creating phones with clearer sound and larger text. One that's protected if it falls or can alert others if you do and makes staying in touch with family and friends simple and enjoyable. At Doro, they are dedicated to helping seniors live a better life without compromise. Doro helped to make ageing an independent, secure and rich part of life. As you know, age is just a number. All you need to do to win a newly launched Doro 7030 handset is go to the website www.seniortimes.ie and follow the instructions. To see the full range of Doro phones, visit www.doro.com. The lucky winner will be announced on the Senior Times Facebook page. Doro Phones, making technology easy for all. If you're enjoying this podcast, why not subscribe to Senior Times, the magazine and website for people who don't act their age. Or maybe you have a loved one or a friend who you know would love to read more. You can buy a subscription and have the magazine delivered direct to their door. To subscribe to Senior Times, visit the website at seniortimes.ie and like us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash senior times. Say hello to Independent Weekend Home Delivery. Save up to 40% with the Irish Independent and Sunday Independent delivered to your door every weekend. Plus, enjoy premium access to independent.ie and read our interactive e-paper edition all week long. All from just €5 Euro per week. Search for Independent Home Delivery now. Do you think that uh, your upbringing um, would make you want to uh, rear your children in a certain way. How many children have you got? I have three children, yeah. Three all children. grown up now, are They're they? They're all grown up, mm -hmm. yeah. All grown up. Um, 
No, I don't know. I was kind of probably forcing happiness on them a bit too much. I remember my daughter, my eldest girl, said, oh, please, ma'am, we're fed up. I'm fed up enjoying myself, trying to make things fun for them all the time, you know. But uh, I think, no, it's fine. I, you, you try not to, to bring... I think you either do the same or the opposite. So I was so busy trying to do the opposite all the time that you'd realise that, well, my own parents had good qualities too, you know. Mm-hmm. They did have good qualities too. Yeah. Back to books. Yeah. Uh, who were your writing heroes as you were um, kind of embarking on a on a, a creative career like that? Yeah, I think um, probably two. Uh, James Joyce. Um, I, I always loved James Joyce. I always felt an affinity with Joyce. I read Ulysses before I read Dubliners and I read Ulysses when I was supposed to be studying for my leaving search, but I got waylaid with that. Now, lots of it I didn't went over my head, but I loved the character of Leopold Bloom immediately. I just got him. I just knew exactly who Leopold Bloom was and what he was about. And I loved the way there was a camera in his head. Like It was like as if Joyce had got into his head, turned on the camera, and you only saw what he saw and you only heard what he heard. Mm-hmm. And I said to myself, if I ever become a writer, that's what I'm going to do with every single character. And you did. And you it's did. what I've it's tried to do. Yeah, I've tried to do. And I love the way Dublin was portrayed in it because I got that thing with Dublin. Um, when I went to that second school I was telling you about, mm-hmm. I spent a lot of time mitching school. And not mitching fun mitching, but kind of not being able to go into school and not being able to go home and wandering around on my own in Dublin. And um, so there was something about the loneliness of Leopold Bloom or, you know, which later I found out was something that happened to Joyce too, that wandering around Dublin. Um, so that relate, I could relate to as well. Mm-hmm. Him and Virginia Woolf just the same thing with the wonderful book, Mrs. Dalloway. She gets into the head and that's all you see. So they were, they, they gave me kind of markers that if I'm going to write, and I wasn't sure I was going to write at this point, um, I that's how I would do it. Otherwise, I wasn't interested in doing it. What do you think uh, was the turning point for you, the, you know, the tipping point for you to become a writer? Well, I can tell you first why my friend, my parents, why I didn't want to be a writer. My parents were friendly with an awful lot of writers and I saw their lives and I sort of thought, oh no, I, I, don't, want those, I don't want that kind of a life. What kind I of want, life is that? But again, the chaos of the 60s and 70s, the bohemian crowd, they knew a lot of those. Now, not all of them were like that. Was there a lot of they partying? Knew, they were, what, drink and kind of uh, sort of party. But the women in particular were very unha- unhappy, I felt. Or very, they didn't have n- nice lives. They weren't lives that you'd aspire to, you know. And um, so I was putting it off and putting it off. That was one of the reasons. Another reason was that I was afraid I couldn't do it. I wouldn't be able to do it. Because it was the last thing you think, right, I will do it eventually. I will mm. do it. And then I thought, what if I do it? And it's just awful crap. And I, and I just don't have any talent for it. What am I going to do then? It'll be awful. Because I've secretly held on to this. My, mm. You know, since I was 10, I've secretly held on to this, this wish. But um, I, I just decided, I, I, I had an accident and broke my collarbone. And I couldn't work. I was working um, in, a fa- in the family business with my husband at the time. And I couldn't work. So I was coming up to the age of 30. And I thought to myself, right, this is going to be, um, you're going you're gonna to either write this year, you're going to do something this year. And if it doesn't happen, then back to the drawing board. You're just not, you're just going to let it go. Forget about it. So I started to write with uh, a foods cap copy. My arm in a sling. My arm is still banjaxed. My collarbone is still banjaxed. <laughs> and writing kind of up in the air. And I did a half an hour a day for, you know, for about three months. Where one story was worse than the next. You know, they were dreadful. And then I wrote a story about a little girl going to the races with her dad. And I reminded myself about the thing about getting into the head of the child. Oh, yes. So I got down on my knees and I pretended I was the height of a five-year-old and I just looked at the 
everything around me. And I remember my, how my father used to hoosh me over the turnstile. Oh, yes. And what that looked like. And the R-Chain boys playing the band and him telling me about the bowl boys, but why and worrying about them and what did they do? And just wandering around the race course looking at things and the Toblerone bars that you'd get and looking at the jockeys and being the same size. <laughs> feeling is about the same size as them. And then the ladies with all the women putting on their makeup and everything. And I just did that. And I entered the store writers week and it won. Fantastic. And that, no matter what happened, if anything crazy happened, like they, every, uh, every other writer in the world died and I got the Nobel Prize for literature because I had nobody else to give it to, I would, nothing will beat the thrill I got the day I got that phone call to say, that I'd won the prize. You can remember it. I sobbed. I sat in the stairs and sobbed. And I rang my husband and he kept saying to me, he was in work, who died? Just tell me who. And he was running through the people who died. No, no. Was it so-and-so? No, no. Was it so-and-so? one of the kids? Was no, no. I couldn't actually get the words out. I was so, so wow. I was crying yeah. so much. Just... And I got into the car and I put myself together and I drove over to my father. And he got into the car. The minute he saw you, he'd want to be brought to the pub, of course. And he got, at that stage, he got into the car and he says, uh, well, to me, what, you know, like sort of what are you doing here? And I said, I, I've tried to tell him I won the thing. And I could see the tears coming into his eyes as oh, well. He was proud. So he looked at me. He wanted to be right himself. Mm -hmm. Really? Yeah, I think when people are frustrated from what they really want to do. Mm -hmm. And um, I, th I think it always shows. He wanted to be a poet. He wanted to write poetry. He always wrote verse. And he showed his, po his poetry when he was a young man to Patrick Kavanagh who was like a father figure to him. They uh -huh. were very good friends. And Kavanagh says to him, it's good, but it's not good enough, he said. And it's only do what you excel at, and you don't excel at this. Mm -hmm. So, he, he, and he took him at his word and he never wrote anything. I was thinking, Christine, as you were talking there about yeah. James Joyce as being a hero, yeah. uh, that one of his amazing... Uh, works is portrait of That's the artist right, as yeah. a young man. And there's the alcoholism in there as well, isn't yeah, there? Well, we Stephen have, Dedalus and mm, the, the father. One of the events I was to do during the, the Tatty events was a talk in the Joyce Centre. And uh, I can't remember the exact title of it. It was John Joyce, Man About Town, whatever. I wanted to say, come down stronger on the fact that he was, you know, an alcoholic. Because it had has occurred to me over the years that Joyce is the adult and his family, they're adult children of alcoholics. And anyway, when lockdown came, I said, well, I'll write the speech anyway. I'll write the talk anyway. I'll have it. It'll give me sort of something to do because none of us knew what was going to happen. And I ended up, instead of being sort of four or five pages, 20, 28 pages of about Joyce and his family and his siblings. Now, I and their, their roles that they took on and the similarities between my own family and their family, and every other family that has that are adult children of alcoholics. Mm -hmm. Now, their father, I think, was, was just, it's very hard to have sympathy for him because he was so selfish. He really, now, he had a great time for James. He great, but he didn't seem to have, he totally neglected the other, the rest of the children. And he really squandered his money. He was given a lot of money. He, he inherited money and he squandered his money and only seemed to be out for himself. Now, in the end, I did find some redeeming factors about him, but I found it very hard to, to find them. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, there is, there is similarities in a lot of different ways. I already knew about years ago, a good few years ago now, I had to give a talk in the Abbey Theatre and they asked me to talk about Joyce as an influence on my writing. And I felt I was a bit arrogant. It sounded as if I was saying, me and Jimmy are up here like, you know. <laughs> and so what I did instead was I looked at the similarities. 
between us as writers who happened to be from Dublin. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot, like the boarding school at an early age, the bond broken with the mother, the father larger than life figure, being the father's little pal, going around with them, and, you know, in the pubs and that kind of thing. Um, the, uh, the, the, the sort of, a lot of different things mm-hmm. were, were similar. But this time when I looked, I saw, I saw that they were all affected by their father's alcoholism. It's interesting talking to you. And then I suppose it makes me view uh, James Joyce, yeah. whom I would only have known as a writer, mm. uh, differently, mm. given the, the story and the yeah. connections that you describe. It's interesting. Yeah. I, I mean, he got away. He got away young. So in a way that that helped him, I think. But when he was here, when he was a young man and a very clever young boy, and he just sort of, I just think he suffered a lot because of it. And I think particularly his brother, Stanny, did. And the, as for the girls, because of course girls in those days would have had a worse time anyway. The, 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 the situation with my own father was different to that. We were never afraid of my father. They were terrified of their father. Um, you know, you, you still see the connections. Still see the, and, I, and you know, if anybody is listening and they feel that they've been affected, I would re- recommend Silent Voices. It's a very good first stop. Yeah. I'm very, I'm very precious about Joyce. You know, I hate <laughs> when people, when I even when I read some of the biographies and they 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 jump and they make these suppositions about him and say mean things about Nora, trying to demean the relationship between them. I get very uptight. You just want to see, and I write on the side of them, like the biographies. I won't mention the name of the writer, the last one. I was, you have no proof of this. What? Do you, and I have it written all over it. I'm big and bad language written all over it as well. Call them <laughs> names. But anyway, that's, that's just me. Okay. <laughs> uh, let's talk about your latest book, yes. the, the Narrow Land, yeah. um, which has a beautiful cover, by Thank the way. Thank you very much. Really, it's really lovely, nice. It? Yeah. Yes, it's gorgeous. The sea Watchers. It's a painting by um, Edward Hopper. And Hopper is, uh, is what we're going to be talking about yeah. in a little while. But this is also um, a, a child's voice. Just give us a little bit in of the the beginning, context. it opens with a child's voice. Mm-hmm. Basically, the story is about a little uh, two children who forge a relationship, a friendship, with Edward, Hopper, the American artist Edward Hopper and his wife Joe during a summer in the summer of 1950 on Cape Cod. And the two 10-year-old boys, one of them is a German refugee. President Truman um, published this directive who, that, to say that he wanted all displaced children to be taken from Europe and brought to America because even after the war, even a couple of years after the war, there were so many displacement camps. People had no homes to go to and children who nobody owned them. Mm -hmm, They were just mm -hmm. there. They didn't know what, you know, who owned them or where they came from. And he said, I don't care if they're children of Nazi soldiers or if they're they're Jewish children, whoever they are, they deserve a chance. Get them, get their papers organised, bring them over here. And he did that. That actually did happen. So this little boy, my little boy, uh, is one of those children and he comes to America and then um, that's how it started. It, it mm-hmm. starts with him. And where did the idea come from for this? Okay, like a lot of things, it lay around, lolled around in my head for a few years. First, I was at a, a dinner in um, Leipzig. I'd been over for a book fair and I happened to be sitting beside uh, a translator uh, who lives here sometimes, I think, Hans Christian Utzer, I think is how you pronounce his, his surname. And he told me a story. And because his name was Hans Christian, I, I said to him, because your name is Hans Christian, I'm going to really listen to your story. Because he said, I have a story to tell you. And the story he told me was that when he was a little boy after the war, from several years after the war, German children suffered from malnutrition. And sometimes they were sent off to farms to be fattened up. And some of those kids would be sent on to be adopted. 
And I said to him, well, like little piggies going to the market. And he said, that's exactly what it's like. And that phrase stayed in my head. And the vision of this little boy sitting among strangers, other little boys that he didn't know, of a five years of age, on a train going through this war-ravaged uh, landscape in Germany. And it just stayed in my head mm-hmm. for about three or four years. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the meeting then of the, the two boys and the, the whole Hopper, Hopper connection. Tell us about yeah, that. Yeah, well, I was in, I was in, again, you think now I never spent a night in my own house, but I was again, <laughs> I was in Boston. At, you know, other writers go and they, and they do their little bit and they go home. I always bring a husband and a big suitcase and we go on a holiday while we're there. <laughs> while we're here, we always say. And the fee is while gone before we even land, you know. <laughs> but anyway, um, we were in Boston and we decided to go on a bit of a tour in Cape Cod. And we were on, uh, in Cape Cod in this remote area in Cape Cod called North Truro. And uh, it's not like the Kennedys, the Cape Cod of the Kennedys, you know, which is kind of more glamorous. It's very, very remote, very otherworldly. And it looks as if it hasn't hardly changed for, for years. It's mm-hmm. like you're on the edge of the world. And Edward Hopper had a summer house here. And... Um, Himself and his wife used to come from New York every summer and they would paint and have huge rows in this particular place. Now, I knew, I, the minute I set foot in the place, I knew I had to get my little German boy here. He started okay. to wake up. Imagine. And he was sort of saying, oh, this will do me, you know. And I knew I had to get him here. And at that stage, I thought, I'll give the, the hoppers an old cameo role for themselves up on the side of a dune painting and the, he, the little boy can see them. So I was kind of mulling this over. I, the light at that in that place, you have to just wear your sunglasses no matter what time of day it is. It's really this stark light that's so, that's so blinding. Mm-hmm. And there's just something about the atmosphere. So that was all I had when I came home okay. from that trip. Well, will you read us a little piece from uh, I read them. This, is from, this is from Edward. This is from Edward Hopper. Edward Hopper, Hopper a little speaking. bit later in the book. At this particular point, Edward Hopper is 67 years of age. He is having a really tough summer trying to find something to paint and his health is giving him trouble. And he's now just heard that he's not going to be able to, he's not, his doctor doesn't want him to swim anymore and he loves the water. So this is him standing in the water in Cape Cod, remembering why he loves water and since when he loved it. And he's looking back at his childhood in Nyack, just outside New York. And then there was the river. He was maybe eight years old running downhill to it and being completely lost in the sounds and the smells of the Nyack boatyard. His father striding behind, calling out to him to slow down. But he couldn't slow down. The best he could do was run back now and then, a breathless pause, a hop and a couple of words before taking off again. Later still, learning to smoke with the school pals, blots of light on the underbelly of the bridge. Grasshopper. That was the nickname he'd had then. 12 years old and already six foot tall. So you just seem, a little bit about him. You seem to have um, a kind of an affection for Edward Hopper. You, oh, I do. You liked yeah, I him got as very a... fond of him. I got very fond of him. Um, I was recovering from um, uh, an operation. I had a kidney removed, which co- discovered by chance... I won't go on too much about it. It's the most famous kidney in Ireland at this stage. <laughs> I think I should write a book about the kidney. Anyway, um, he uh, and I was recovering from that illness. I had the first chapter written. The little boy was on the train going from New York to Cape Cod. And uh, that's all. He just got there and I didn't know what I was going to do with him when he got there. But anyway, around that time, I went to the doctor and mentioned a bit of a pain in, the, in my back. I went for something else for prescription. And uh, she sent me for a scan 
and uh, she sent me for a scan because um, my an aunt of mine had died of ovarian cancer. And she was a young locum, a very, you know, very thorough, and she sent me off. And the ovaries were grand, but they discovered a tumour on the kidney. And it turned out I had cancer of the kidney. So oh. before I knew where I was, I was in, got the, got the thing out and came back. And I was having a difficult time recovering. And I got bouts of migraine and sciatic and God, every day there was something new. But I couldn't sleep. I couldn't sleep and I couldn't sleep. Now I know it's post-surgery depression, but nobody told me this might happen to you, you know. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I couldn't sleep and nighttime I'd be wandering around the house or I'd lie in there and... Anyway, I started, one day I came down, I lay on the sofa in the sitting room and I put on the television and I found a documentary. I'd recorded some weeks before, months before, about Cape Cod and Edward Hopper. And really, it was just to get the flavour of the sea and the landscape and whatever. And it was on for two, about, about 20 seconds and I fell asleep. And the next day I did the same thing and I just kept watching it. This was my sleep time in the afternoon lying on the mm-hmm. sofa. And gradually, I began to stay awake longer and longer. But it's a brilliant documentary and I'd highly recommend it. It's called Edward Hopper and the Blank Canvas. And um, his voice is in it and he's in it and the sea is in it and this really weird, lovely, beautiful music is in it. And uh, I got to know him and I kind of really liked him. And he was six foot seven and his wife was five foot. Mm. He rarely spoke. And if he did, it took him forever. It drawled out a real slow slow delivery. She was chippy, chippy, chippy. She spoke very hyperactive and just spoke really f- quickly. And uh, they were so opposite in so many ways. And then I read a, bo- a biography about him. And in the biography, they say terrible, some awful things about him. And I was thinking, that's disappointing now because I really liked him. God, imagine that. So then something made me read it again. And the second time I read it, it was a big biography. And the second time I read it, I started to see that all the negative things that were said about him came from only one source, and that was his wife, her oh. diaries and her letters. Now, I'd already ascertained that the wife was very volatile and he was up <laughs> and down, like I don't know you what. You weren't a fan. So, no, I wasn't, I wasn't a fan. I was saying, well, this woman is obviously not the full chillin', you know, so why are we taking this as being gospel? Mm-hmm. And I am quite sensitive about this idea, again, getting back to biographies of Joyce and people, and Dickens indeed, that... People can say anything they want about you and mm. they make suppositions when you're dead and you're not there to defend yourself, you know, especially as time goes by. People with an agenda. Yeah, you know, mm. they're just trying to make a point or whatever. So anyway, I went back. I tried to be as true to both of them now as I could. And I used a lot of the diary and a lot of her letters. But I would look at the other side of the coin. Because when I looked deeper into Edward Topper and his own friends said things about him. They all said lovely things and said mm-hmm. he was a very nice man. She was very controlling. She didn't like people being near him. She would only allow herself to be his model when she was painting. But he was always painting tall women and she was tiny and buxom women, you know, and she was a tiny little thing. But anyway, I looked at this. She said things about he stopped her career. He stood in the way of her career. Um, all men were the same. One minute. And then she'd say, oh, he's a wonderful man. He's, I'm so lucky to have him. He's brilliant. He's just so good and kind. And he cleans up around the house and he can cook and he can do this and he can do that. You know, so you're saying, you know, make her up your mind. But anyway, when I went and I saw her paintings, the, her tragedy was that she wasn't an artist. She had the soul of an artist, but she didn't actually have the talent. Yeah. And because she married someone like him, she wanted to be uh, the mm-hmm. same as him. And I suppose yeah. most people uh, will know Edward Hopper for his kind of dark, 
post-war yeah. paintings and Nighthawks. Yeah, Nighthawks is his most famous one. Yeah. And that's the one that he kind of... That's the diner with just the diner. three people yeah. sitting at or the Or did table. you see the COVID? Suppose the, the COVID one now is they're all outside, sitting outside with masks <laughs> on them and only the, only the, 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 the what do you call it, the fella with the yeah. behind Actually, bars it's, there. It's interesting you should say that because yeah. that is really, I suppose, the way things are for us at the moment yeah. with the, you know, the, the social distancing that's and right. things. I'm, I'm thinking also, Christine, the... The, the the whole COVID experience, how's it been for you? Because you said, you know, you had health issues with your kidney. And yeah. did you have to be terribly careful? And do you have to be terribly I have, careful um, still? I sound like a right crock now, but I'm used to being careful because I have um, an autoimmune condition and I have, it comes under the rheumatoid arthritis lupus um, umbrella. So I'm kind of used to washing the hands a lot and opening doors with elbows. Okay. And, you know, and have when you shake hands with somebody, then having a sneaky wipe of the hands because it seems rude, you know. But um, I'm kind of used to that. My immune system is, is it has to be calmed down. And so every six months I go to hospital and I get a, an infusion. And for a few weeks after that, it's very low, you know. So anyway, I have to be careful. Mm -hmm. So I'm used to that. And as a writer, I'm kind of used to the isolation thing too. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, as I said, the kids are grown up. They don't live at home. Um, so there is just myself and my husband there. Darby and Joan, I always said that, but I don't even know who Darby and Joan <laughs> are. I'll have to check up. I don't know who they are. But anyway, um, we, so we're kind of used to it. But what I find difficult is, I think... Um, it's going on, it goes on so long. Whereas there, there could be two weeks where we don't go out, but then you will be going out to the theatre. I love the theatre. Yes, I miss that. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, going out to, with friends for a bite to eat or whatever. Those kind of things. Seeing the kids. So what are you writing at the moment? What's, I'm what's... writing books out in London. Oh. And it's, um, it's, it's kind, I don't know what I'm going to do with it now. It'll be iffy because COVID again has changed everything. From a writer's point of view, the first big change was the mobile phone. You know, when the mm -hmm. mobile phone mm -hmm. changed the plot of everything. I always think of, you know, plays of, of Waiting for Godot was on. The kids in the audience would be thinking, why doesn't he just send a text message? Are <laughs> <laughs> they out of coverage? So, you know, you have to keep thinking about that because it changes the plot of everything. But anyway, my idea was that I would have three characters, two of them are brothers, and um, a, who go to London in the 70s. And they just get lost within that. And they can't come back to Ireland because Ireland has changed so much and there's nowhere to go. So I had a barmaid and a trumpet player and a boxer. And that's the, the and, setting, Well, I'm, I'm working on it, you know. I have, mm -hmm. I have bits of it written from this and that and the other. But now I'm worried because isolation was a big theme in it. And there's so many pubs already closing down in London that I have my barmaid, for example, squatting in the pub she used to live in because she's nowhere to go and worrying about it. And I have my boxer squatting in the boxing club where he used to, which is derelict, waiting to be you know, mm -hmm. and, and the trumpet player, you know, I hadn't quite decided what to do with him. He had done a little bit better for himself. He played in the orchestra. And, and where did the research now take you for this one? Well, last, the year before last, to the end of the year, myself and my husband went over to London for three months. Oh, sure, the kids thought we were going oh, mad. Oh, really? What are you doing going to London? They were raging, of course. But we just <laughs> rented an apartment and went over. 
And we had a ball. We had a great time. Did you? Oh, I had a great time. I just loved it. And we stayed in Bayswater. It was fabulous. I just absolutely loved it. And did some research there. Did, went to a lot of theatre. Walked the legs off ourselves. We did quite a lot of research because there's nothing to beat boots on the ground, I think, for research. Whether it was Cape Cod. I went there twice. I went back again. Or London. Because you're listening to the way that people speak and you're listening to, you're picking up on the attitudes and you're just looking around. Things you're, you're not going to find on the internet. Or you're not going to find books. Well, the Irish pubs in London. Also the boxing clubs. The boxing Because they're club. so Irish, aren't oh, they? The, well, they're not all so... I don't know if they're all Irish, but the boxing club that I found my way to. Mm -hmm. And one thing always leads to another. Like we were walking across this little park and we saw this elderly man walking towards us. And my husband says, this fellow, I'll ask this fellow how you get to Little Venice. This fellow's a real Londoner now. We'll, you'll hear a bit of what. And he said, excuse me, sir, could you tell me how to get? And your man was from Galway to him. <laughs> I can indeed, he says. And we got chatting to him. And he was a lovely fellow, Christy. And we... Um, we met him for lunch and we met him a few times and he introduced me to a guy called Mickey Delaney who's an old coach who uh, trains young people and young men. For years he's been doing it and it was part of the, it's the um, Dale um, Boxing Club and they were, used to be under the Granville Tower before, you know, when that's where they were the, positioned. The tower in the basement. Yeah, went on fire. Went on fire. And then they were rehoused. So I went down to meet them and I had a wonderful time with them. Oh, Mary, I loved them. They were great. Like, there were, there were people from all over the world there, you know, from all different ethnic backgrounds. Mm -hmm. But Mickey, Mickey Delaney and his pal were there, and they're, they're all, they were talking about the, all the people with Irish names, you know, and he'd be saying, whatever happened to, whatever happened to Ronan O'Reilly and Sounds <laughs> of O'Connor, and, you know, all these names that you, you'd see. Yeah. And, and the, 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 the young men would tell you all their business, and they'd tell you about the prisons they were in, as if they were telling you what school they went to. No embarrassment, no, it's just part of their lives. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I got into the ring with them and everything. Aww. Usually I hated boxing. I wouldn't have, I'd just say, why would two grown men or women now is what's get into a ring and, you know, bash each other, beat bash each their other. heads up, beat each other up. But I got into the ring with, uh, with Christy. He got me in, brought me into the ring. And they all were telling me all their stories. And in the end, you know what I wanted to, I just wanted to give up everything and go on the road with this, these people. I make tea and sandwiches like Mrs. Doyle for them for the rest of my life. I love them so much. They were great. They were so, terrific characters. So that's progressing uh, That is progressing. But as I said, I, I, there's going to be so many COVID novels yeah. that I don't want to... I, I just have to see. But then at the same time, I want it to be natural and to find its own mm -hmm. progression. Mm -hmm. So life is good. It sounds as so if life, life is very good. good. And, you know, we're, we're at home. My husband plays his piano. He's, he loves lockdown. He's a real lockdown man. He plays his piano and writes a bit of music and goes out to the garden and reads his paper and comes in and gives out about Trump every five minutes, you know, whatever. <laughs> And uh, and it's and it's it's fine. Everything is okay. Oh, well, listen, yeah. Christine, thank you so much oh, for being you, a Mary. part of it. this podcast uh, and and for being so open and so vibrant and positive. It it really is a, a joy to listen That's to. That's probably down to you. You know, with other <laughs> with other interviewers, I don't open my mouth. I'm very cagey. <laughs> I really enjoyed the conversation there with Christine Dwyer Hickey. She is a vibrant, fun-loving, engaging person. And she's quite self-deprecating when you're talking to her. As she says herself, the wounds of her childhood come through in every book. And it seems to me that her writing is becoming stronger and stronger all the time. This Senior Times podcast was produced by Simon Marta and engineered by Mark Murphy.